can turn in your Bibles now to 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. I don't know if you recall, but uh, a while back I had an opportunity to preach on chapter 1 in the mornings. Uh, but since I've completed a sermon series on Micah, and uh, I'm not sure when I'll be able to preach in the morning again, I figured I would continue with 1 Peter in the evening. 1 Peter 2. Verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for God's own possession, so that you might may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So ends the reading of God's word. If you were to write a letter to a persecuted church someplace in the world, maybe to North Korea or Sudan or China, maybe even. Uh, just putting that idea in your mind. What, what are the things that you might write in that letter to, the, to encourage those people suffering persecution? Maybe you would write a lot about how you're praising God for their perseverance in the midst of a very difficult situation. And praising God for all the grace that he's given to them and to, to, to allow them to, to endure. Maybe you would be writing to them about how you're praying for them. And to want to encourage them to just keep on pressing forward. Well, And then, it, of course, that ought to be something you are doing. Uh, be praying for those who are under persecution. Maybe you would spend a lot of time in that letter talking about heaven about the world to come and our hope in Jesus Christ, so that as they endure the difficulties of this life, they knew that there is something coming in the future to encourage them to keep on pressing forward, that suffering in this life ultimately is worth it because we have eternity to spend enjoying our presence with Jesus. If you read through Peter's letters, you'll find that he does a bit of this. Although, interestingly enough, he doesn't 
doesn't so much mention about praying for uh, the, the people to whom he is writing like Paul does in his letters. Uh, but in any case, as you are reading through First and Second Peter, remember that Peter is especially writing to a persecuted church. And that kind of helps inform us about how we read. In fact, you could even consider First Peter to kind of be a manual for the persecuted Christian. How do you endure and live through persecution? Now, as you go through the book, if you keep that in mind, there might be some things that surprise you because Peter deals with things that maybe you wouldn't want to write about if you were the ones who were writing um, this letter. Peter deals with, at times, sort of nitty-gritty issues of practical life and doctrine. Uh, The beginning of the text tonight uh, deals with the proper use of speech and having a proper attitude towards others. And later in the letter of Peter... Peter deals with the subject of submission to authority, including you know, the husband-wife relationship. Why is it that we find these things in a letter that is directed towards a persecuted church? So one thing that, that this should encourage you as you think about that issue is that uh, whether or not the church is a persecuted church or, or unpersecuted, fundamentally... All Christians are the same. All believers in Jesus Christ are the same, and we have fundamentally the same needs, regardless of what situation God calls us into. So whenever, but whenever you uh, encounter these kinds of things in the Bible, where he's like, well, why is it written like this? Why are we given these things? You know, this isn't what I would expect to, to write if, if I were write, facing this kind of situation. It should encourage you to think deeply about the question. Why is it different than why, what I'm expecting? Am I misinterpreting something? Am I missing something? Um, or maybe my whole, whole thinking is a little bit off in my expectations. Or my perspective on the Christian faith is a little bit different or uh, wrong in some ways that makes me ask that question. Now, I think if if you go through this particular passage, uh, I don't know that you're going to be struck with some uh, startling new truth or discovery uh, as you read through uh, this this passage. Um, But if we take our cues from verses 5, 9, and 10, which speak about the unity, growth, and service of, of service to God of the body of Christ, Peter is addressing matters that have an influence on the unity, growth, and service uh, uh, to God that these persecuted uh, Christians needed to hear. You know, in times of uh, persecution, there would be many temptations to fall back into a, a worldly life, uh, maybe to, to even if they didn't reject their uh, profession of faith, um, there are many pressures upon them to do things that are inappropriate for us to do. So Peter, Peter addresses many of those things in chapter 1, and he continues in chapter 2. He reminds them in chapter 1, for example, about the emptiness of their former way of life, uh, the need to be holy, pure, and self-controlled. Then in verse 22 of chapter 1, he tells the believers of their need to love one another, which is, of course, really the key to any real kind of unity 
within the church. And so as we consider this sermon, um, a holy people for a holy stone, we're going to be looking at principles of growth of the church in Jesus, of Jesus Christ, the holy cornerstone, and the growth of this church, of, of the body of Jesus Christ into a holy spiritual house fit for God's service. And so as we meditate this evening on, on these themes, we're going to break it into three different points or sections. Uh, first, some do's or do's and don'ts, or rather really don'ts and do's. I'm going to put the don'ts first and then the do's, which I know that's not the way we usually say it, but uh, that's what fits uh, um, the passage better. Then we'll look at our being living stones for the living stone, and finally contemplate our being God's people, uh, a, a house built of living stones. So first, some don'ts and do's. Uh, verses 1 and 2 uh, of this chapter begin uh, with really one sentence, and it begins with the word, therefore, which references the, the verse 22 of the, the previous chapter, which reads, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. In order for people, the people of God to truly one love one another, they must not have malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander among them. So that's the don'ts here. Don't have any of these things harbored in your heart or manifesting themselves in your life. Now, the NIV and most other translations of this text read, uh, the beginning of this, this, this verse, read as rid yourselves, as a command. Um, however, while this is certainly true that all believers are commanded against doing these things, technically this is a, a bad translation of the Greek text. It really should probably read something more like having put away. Uh, in other words, Paul, Peter assumes that his readers have already put these things aside. Now, there, of course, there is implicit in that a kind of command because these things are bad and we know we need to get rid of them from our lives. But it, Peter is assuming that to a degree these things have already been put aside and removed like, they remove them like uh, old rags um, these things are, that belong to their former way of life have been put away. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, these are things which are in utter contradiction to living a life united with other believers as the body of Christ. And to be a believer means being united in love to one's brothers and sisters in Christ. As persecuted believers, uh, there were no doubt a lot of temptations for some of these things to manifest themselves again in their lives. There's been a lot of pressure on them. You know, when you're under a lot of stress, it's easy to become irritated with others, to get uh, become uh, angry. Uh, there's frustration. There's flaring tempers. And no doubt it was the case amongst these early believers that they were falling into these sins on occasion. That's just human, sinful human nature. But even more than at other times, these believers needed each other and needed to stick together if they're going to stick it out for Christ in the middle of persecution. 
Although there have been many instances throughout the history of God's church, amongst his people, in which believers have been completely cut off from other believers, and they were sustained in faith uh, by the direct presence of God in their hearts and minds, more often than not, God's presence is felt amongst God's people as they are um, connected directly with and have fellowship with other believers. Um, God's presence in some ways is mediated to us through our brothers and sisters in Christ as we fellowship with them. As believers, then, you likewise need to keep a, a, a vision of being one body, and in doing so, recognize that the sins described here, as one commentator said, is, are, are a deadly influence on brotherly love. Malice or ill will, as it it could be translated here. Uh, could simply be defined as David's the commentator mentioned uh, a force that destroys fellowship. Uh, going on, deceit, hypocrisy are, are both words that express ways of speaking or acting with ulterior or usually base motives. As such, these are completely contrary to living for the truth and undermine our whole Christian witness. Envy is often the inward attitude behind deceit and hypocrisy. And according to Matthew 27, 18, it was the motive behind the crucifixion of Christ. Envy then often works its way out in slander. Deceit and hypocrisy are to the face responses of our sinful hearts towards those whom, with whom we, we harbor malice or envy. The slander often goes behind the back to hurt someone in their absence. Therefore, uh, David goes on to say, Peter has neatly cut the ground from any practice other than open truth and love among members of the Christian community. It may be the tough love of a rebuke, but Christians should be able to trust that no ulterior motives lie behind fellow believers' actions and that nothing is said in their absence that has not already been said their face. So let me ask you this evening, do you have that confidence with others here in our church? Do you believe that people feel this trust towards you? If not, you need to carefully examine your speech and your attitudes and repent and ask for God for a transformed heart that is filled with the love for fellow believers. Pray for fellow believers here that they would act accordingly as well so that we might be built up in unity with one another. So there are some don'ts. Now what are the do's? Really, Paul's emphasis is really aren't on the don'ts, but are on the do's. And that's where the real, um, uh, real heart of, of this passage is and the command to crave pure spiritual milk. Now, it's not usually a good idea to try to explain Greek in sermons, unless maybe you're a, a, a big-time theologian or pastor or whatever. But anyway, uh, I'm going to point out a few things here, even though sometimes it just goes every bow of everybody's head. But anyway, it's very interesting. There's the word pure. Um, this word for pure is almost the exact same word used in verse 1 for deceit. Now, pure and deceit, how could that be any way similar? The only thing difference is that the word here 
for pure has, a, in the Greek, has an ah prefix on it, right? So in English, you know, you have, for example, the word more and amor, right? If you add the ah in the front, and that means sort of like not. So moral isn't moral, and amoral is not moral, right? So in the Greek here, we have deceit and ah deceit, right? The opposite of deceit is pure. Now, uh, interesting enough, I, I, I'm, I, again, I'm not a Greek expert here, but um, apparently this was a common term that was used for describing milk. Um, and so, in any case, it's pure. This milk is pure because it is lacking in deceit. There's probably a little bit of wordplay going on here because this milk is representative of the word of God, which is, of course, free of deceit. So it's a very appropriate word here to describe the word of God. Now, if you read this verse in the NIV or ESV, it says pure spiritual milk, right? Whereas the King James Version and the New American Standard Bible, like where we read here, uh, it says pure milk of the word. Now, which translation is correct here? Well, the thing is that neither translation is really correct. Precise. It's very difficult to express what Peter is writing here. A little, lot of wordplay and things going on. But um, the, the, the NIV and ESV kind of capture the basic meaning of the term with the word spiritual. But the King James Version and New American Standard reflect the fact that the word being translated in Greek is actually the adjective form of the Greek word logos which means word. So maybe many of you have heard that Greek word logos before. Um, shows up a lot in John's writings, especially John, Gospel of John chapter 1. Uh, but the word means the word, if you literally translate it. But that's a very, it's a very complicated term. But in any case, the adjective form of this, uh, wordy, I don't know if you can really translate that way in English, but uh, that, that, of course wordy has a very different meaning in English in any way. But anyway, it's difficult to explain this form of logos, why it's used here, except to say that a word reveals what's within someone, right? Within someone's spirit. If, if you want to let someone else know what's inside of you, you have to say a word. And that communicates something from inside of you or from your, inside your spirit outwardly. Um, so that uh, this, this word, this pure word, this this. Milk is spiritual uh, because it expresses something from the spirit, from within one. And specifically, specifically, of course, this is God's word. So it's expressing something spiritual or something wordy uh, from God. It's a word from God. Important thing for you to understand is that uh, Peter is contrasting the deceit and wickedness of our former lives with the truth and purity of of the spiritual milk that we are to crave. So there's, there's some wordplay here going on between the old way of life and the, the new way of life and the word of God, which we uh, should be craving. Uh, this verse is further expanding on verses 23 and 25 of chapter 1, um, which speak of the word of God as being living and enduring, having caused the readers to be born Again, as our uh, larger catechism reminds us that the word convinces us and converts sinners and comforts and builds up believers unto salvation. So here it says 
that you need to crave that spiritual milk, that wordy milk, so to speak, like newborn babies. Now, I have some experience with newborn babies, even though it's not been very recently the case, but I do have a little bit. But I can remember that back a long time ago, when my children were babies, um, that sometimes, to this daddy's consternation, rocking them and hugging and kissing them and talking to them and coddling them and singing to them or even trying to give them pacifier didn't satisfy them. Why? Well, because they're hungry and daddy couldn't give them what they wanted. They craved mom's milk. And so daddy got an earful of crying until mommy could come over and take over and provide the children what they wanted. Now, they desired milk, not because they just carefully pontificated on everything that, all the different options that may be available to different things that they could eat, and then decided on, ah, oh, yes, I think I want milk. Yes, that's what I want, right? They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't really, they didn't do that, of course. It was simply in their desire to want milk. That's just what babies desire. So, too, for the Christian there should be a desire for God's word that only is satisfied with God's word. Because that is in the believer's nature. It should be in our very nature that we love God's word. We crave it just like a little baby craves his or her uh, mother's milk. Now, while I'm going beyond Peter's metaphor here, consider the situation where it, when a baby, or if a baby didn't crave, uh, his mother's milk. That would actually be a, a pretty scary situation. If a newborn did not want milk, what would that child eat? I think it was the grandmother of a friend of mine when I was growing up um, who had actually a child who had some kind of, I don't know, lactose, is that the right, lactose intolerance, or some kind of intolerance to milk that was so bad that she could not eat her mother's milk. And, of course, that was terrifying. What are you going to feed that child? This was a long, long time ago. It wasn't like you could just go out to the store and buy some uh, um, lactose-free you know, uh, milk formula. This was maybe 100 years ago or something like that. And just like in Paul Peter's day, uh, there weren't milk substitutes. What do you do? It turns out they figured out something, but it, it, just to, to conclude that story. But anyway, it... it it really is a, a terrifying, would be a terrifying thing if you had a child in that kind of situation in that day. And this really should be the kind of response that you ought to have towards someone, including yourself, if this, you fit this category, who claim to be a believer, claim to be a Christian, and yet have no real desire for God's word, to know it, make no, makes no effort to, to, to learn its meaning. If we have really tasted that the Lord is good, as verse 3 says, we will crave his word. Now, maybe again, going off of the uh, uh, metaphor here that Peter used even a little bit more farther, but imagine a mother who decides she's so busy that she is going to cut, out, cut down feedings on her child, maybe cut them in half because she wants to make time for more important things. Could you really imagine that happening? 
For a child would clearly be deprived. And so too you are deprived. You not make time for God's word. So crave the spiritual milk. Persecuted Christians in their day desperately needed the word to strengthen them. And just as today, we need the spiritual milk as well. There is no means to grow into spiritual maturity without it. Another passage of scripture, like Hebrews 5, 13, milk is sometimes depicted as a sort of basic teaching of the gospel that only baby Christians uh, should need to con continue to consume, consume. But Peter uses this metaphor a little differently. Uh, it's not like that. Um, it's something for all believers, new and old. So this should cause you to be wary, especially, of any Christian movement which fails to emphasize the teaching of God's word as a means to Christian growth and to Christian unity. Now, Christian music and video and radio, counseling programs, revival and special worship meetings, Christian fellowship movements, social media, and what have you, all, all these things may be good and useful in their own times, in the appropriate times, but uh, if in the end the word of God is not in some way central to them, uh, they cannot be a major source of the Christian's growth and unity. You grow up in salvation as you put off unholiness and put on holiness through consuming the spiritual milk of God. So now, if the community of believers is growing in salvation and ridding themselves of malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander, and growing in the salvation through the pure word of God, then the encouragement to them, to, to you, is that you are being built into a spiritual house for God. You are living stones for the living stone. Even though it may have felt at times that the world was tearing them down, rejecting them, rejecting their Savior, Peter assures these believers at this time that God's purpose for them was being fulfilled. Built on the living cornerstone of Christ, the people of God were living stones used, unlike the dead ones that were in the past that were built the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem. They were living stones. They are being used to build a new temple for God for a new and better ministry and worship. The text says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about the Old Testament history and the, the history of the Jews and the, and the formation of the king, kingdom of Israel, at the heart of this nation building was the establishment and the maintenance and, and protection of and the worship in the temple in Jerusalem. That was really the heart and soul of the nation, in, in, uh, from a worldly perspective at least, in terms of the way they were organized as a nation. But given that Jesus had been rejected by both the leaders of the Jews and the Gentiles, really, in Peter's day, there, there, were, there were no large cathedrals of, of Christians worshiping, um, where the Christians were worshiping, and they weren't building these real big buildings, uh, nor were there any really large social or political institutions being established. 
Uh, it might have been tempting at that time to think, you know, you know, we before we had this big temple, you know, for some of the Jewish Christians, you know, we had this big temple where we worshipped, and that was very beautiful and special. And we had this nation that was, you know, we could see and we could we could develop. Maybe as they looked at their situation as persecuted people with no big building or what have you, might have been tempted to wonder if they were accomplishing anything. But Peter reminds these believers that as they put away wickedness and grow in their salvation, a great spiritual temple with spiritual sacrifices and spiritual worship were being established. The living stone built on a living temple, excuse me, living temple built on the living stone of Christ out of the people of Christ, living stones, has made alive, has been made alive through his redeeming blood. And it is an impregnable and indestructible temple, unlike the ones, the one built in Jerusalem, built of dead rock or non-living rock. And so that ought to be a great comfort for all believers who are being persecuted and rejected by the world. Maybe it doesn't look like we have some big institution or big buildings or big influence on the world. But as we draw close to Christ and as we come together as God's people, we are a great temple being established for God's glory. As you consider this, Remember that this is your work as well. Certainly, there is a place for church buildings. I'm not preaching against having a church building. And there is maybe a place for um, Christians organizing things like political or social institutions. But you should unapologetically, you Grace Church, unapologetically, as your first goal, you should see to it at the living temple of of God grows through evangelization, through missions, and through the sanctification uh, of God's people, growing up in your faith in Christ. Not only are you called to build and be the temple, uh, but to be priests offering sacrifices. No doubt these sacrifices are the praise and worship of God and the loving service of believers to one another, which happens as the Church puts away wickedness like malice and envy and all the rest we read about, and then grows in our knowledge and, and application of the Word of God in our lives. The text says that these sacrifices are acceptable to God, not on their own merit, but on the basis of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, the world may not value this. In fact, we know that it won't. They have rejected the chief cornerstone, and they will reject all of the other holy stones being used to build this temple. But this temple is valuable to God because it honors his son, whom he values and builds his temple upon. In verses 6 through 8, Peter quotes from Isaiah and the psalm to demonstrate that believers and their cornerstone, Christ, being rejected was always part of God's plan. Now, I don't want to comment on these verses uh, at length, but I want to say two things. First is that these, while these verses acknowledge that Christ would be rejected and emphasizes that those who trust in him will not be put to shame. The, the followers 
may be rejected by Christ, as just as Christ is rejected, we ultimately will not be put to shame. Maybe in this life, it might be awkward in certain situations when we're surrounded by unbelievers and maybe feel a little uncomfortable or embarrassed or what have you. But ultimately, when the judgment comes, we will not be disappointed. Peter knew that the, that the rejection of his readers were, were suffering was difficult and they knew that they would experience it and he wanted them to be encouraged that in the end there was a blessing for those in Christ. Secondly, Peter emphasizes that the rejection of Christ, which leads to the hardening of underbelievers, is also part of God's sovereign plan. Verse 8 says, Where they stumble because they are disobedient to the world, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, while first Peter's recipients suffered from the wickedness of those who, who have stumbled at the preaching of Jesus, they can be assured that even this hardening of these unbelievers is part of God's plan. It's not as if this is accident or God has forgotten about them. God has a mysterious plan that even includes the sins of unbelievers. In some way that we don't understand, even these things will lead to the ultimate benefit of believers. Therefore, the temple building of the Christian is, is never in vain even if it's assailed from many directions and is rejected by most men. Now, as we come to close this evening, I want to take a look at the last two verses that really sum up the encouragement that Peter wants to bring to his readers. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 9 is, is basically a weaving together of, of a few verses from the Old Testament about the nation of Israel. One is Exodus 19, 5, 6, uh, 19, yeah, 5 through 6, another is Isaiah 43, 20 and 21 say now if you keep if you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession all the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of priests a holy nation and the wild animals honor me the jackals and the owls because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people my chosen the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise then verse 10 is a restatement of verses, a number of verses in Isaiah, or Hosea, excuse me. Yeah, and in that book, if you're familiar with that, um, using the figure of Hosea's wife, Hosea describes Israel as rejected because of her sins, but then later accepted because of God's sovereign love for her. So the point of these verses is that despite the fact that Peter's recipients may have felt like a tattered group of rejects, God is fulfilling his promises to them to build for himself a holy nation through them. They may not look like a nation. They didn't have political borders. They didn't have political institutions and an army and so forth. They were scattered about the ancient Roman Empire and, and beyond. They were different racial backgrounds and had different forms of speech and were governed by different governments. And yet... 
God was fulfilling his promise to build them into a holy nation, into, a, uh, the, into one house, to one temple. Just like there was a temple that was established in ancient Israel, that, uh, around which the whole of Israeli society centered, so now God is building us into a, a temple uh, where God will be served point of these verses is, is that despite the fact that Peter's recipients may have felt like tight utter rejects, God was keeping his promises. The new Israel, the nation of God, the church, the kingdom of God, the object of God's affection, his favor and choice is not a strip of land in Palestine or the government that controls it or the Jewish people as such, but all who place their trust in Christ. The ra- group of ragtag followers that received this letter as insignificant and battered as they may have seen, as he felt at times, these people were the, 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 were, the, were the people of God. They were the kingdom of God. They were once in darkness, but now they have wonderful light. They have the opportunity to feast on the pure word of God's word. Pure milk of God's word. Once they were in darkness, but now they have the wonderful light of God's word. Once they knew no mercy, and now they have mercy. They have forgiveness in Christ. Once they were not a people, they were all scattered around, but now they are God's people, even if they are scattered in this world. As true as it was for those people 2,000 years ago, it is true for you who trust in Christ. You are his people, called to give him praise and offer up spiritual sacrifices as God's priests. If you feel your life is still stained with malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and things like that that described earlier in this text, if you don't feel like you take God's word seriously enough, well, take heart if you fear the Lord Jesus Christ, for he has died for those very sins. That is what this passage ultimately is encouraging you to believe this evening. Well, it's true that these kinds of sins stand in the way of developing deeper, a deep relationship with Christ. They stand in the way of developing a deeper relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, they disrupt the, the corporate unity uh, of this house of God in which you're, you're, you are uh, living, this, this temple. But be reminded that it is God's work that has made you his people. Jesus is the capstone and not you. And if God has made Christ the cornerstone of the temple in in, in which you are a stone, how could God forsake you? That is a great message of the gospel and a great encouragement to you this evening. You are his people. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, as we meditate on the salvation that we have in Christ, it seems at times unthinkable that anyone would reject you. And yet, we hear from your word that that, uh, just as it is in our own day, it was in in Peter's day, that people do reject you. And that even this is part of your plan. Uh, Oh, Father, we, we thank you that you have called us to be your own, that you have given us your spirit, that you have opened our eyes to the truth of your gospel. And that you have invited us as your people to come together as um, a a temple for your glory. Father, 
as we prepare our hearts now to receive the Lord's Supper um, and we sing to your praise, uh, Father, may we meditate upon the fact that uh, this meal uh, is for the members of that temple described in this passage. Oh, Father, bless us now as we uh, uh, sing to your praises and approach your table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.